Welcome to On The Spot with Melinda Garvey, the On The Dot interview series where we sit down with some of the most intriguing and interesting women to watch featured in our daily email newsletter and podcast, Four Minutes with On The Dot. Make sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode of On The Spot, now available every Thursday on your favorite podcast streaming services. Today, I'm sitting down with the incredible Brittany Packnett, known for her work as the National VP for Teach for America, co-host of Crooked Media's pod Save the People podcast, an outspoken intersectional Black Lives Matter activist. Without further ado, let's start the show. I'm your host, Melinda Garby, founder of On The Dot, whose mission is to lead women to success through stories and actionable advice from role models. But the key here is that these role models are relatable. They're women just like you and me who have blazed the trail, and we're bringing them to you so that we can help you walk your own path to success. And today, I'm really excited to welcome someone who is not only a great role model, but is a woman who has made a career out of campaigning for the rights of others. In her most current role as Teach for America's Vice President of National Community Alliances and Engagement, Brittany Packnett is all about engaging communities to help low-income kids succeed. But that's just her day job. And way do you hear everything else this powerhouse is up to. So Brittany, welcome. I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So before we kind of talk about the current, the here and now, and and what you're up to, because there's a lot to dive into. I want to go way back to when you were a young girl and your family and sort of what were your dreams back then? What are the things that you think were formative to you that brought you to where you are today? Oh, gosh, so many things. I am, I think my parents' example has been really critical to this entire journey. They were folks who both in our faith tradition and uh, in their professional and personal work spent a lot of time advocating for communities, engaging with communities, and doing so through schools, through higher education, through the church, through community work. It kind of didn't matter the platform, what mattered was the work. And so they were the first ones that I think really inspired me to understand that there's a responsibility that those of us with any kind of privilege have to ensure that we're using that privilege to expand access for people at all times and in all ways. And so I take that responsibility and that duty very seriously. And that means, like you said, whether it's in my day job at Teach for America, whether it's in the work that I do to empower communities in terms of racial justice, women's issues, the work that we do on Pod Save the People, our podcast where we really work to educate and illuminate issues that are not getting the kind of attention that they should. Whatever the platform, I believe that my work is all about teaching and speaking truth that and moves people to action that moves people to do good work in the world. And my pathway to that certainly has been deeply inspired by the folks that I was raised by and by the communities that I've had the privilege to serve. That's awesome. So in addition to your very many accolades, President Obama says you are, and I quote, a leader whose voice is going to be making a difference for years to come. So you mentioned some of the initiatives and some of the different things that you're doing, the podcast and other things. I'd love for you just to sort of talk about why you get involved in different things and why you've launched different initiatives and how you think that those will have this ripple effect and this sort of longevity that President Obama referred to. 
Well, I certainly, you know, appreciated him saying that I spent time working on his 21st Century Policing Task Force. And we were constantly reminded about one of his favorite quotes from Dr. King, which is that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And he likes to emphasize that long part, right, that justice and freedom will take many generations. And so it is each of our responsibility to make sure that we don't burn out, that we don't overextend ourselves such that we're not here to do the work for as long as it needs to be done. And so I try to keep that in mind with the engagements that I have in multiple spaces, because it's really not about putting myself on a platform. It's about informing and educating and activating other people so that the multiplier effect that's necessary can really take hold. In all of those things, I'm a person that believes that wherever you see a gap, it's because you were meant to fill it, that each of us has a unique perspective and the things and the needs and the gaps that I see are different than the needs and the gaps that you see. And if you see them, it's because you are uniquely positioned, you have unique passion, you have unique gifts and talents to help fill that gap. And so some of the gaps that I see in particular are around how we enable everyday people to work for social change. You know, I was actually on Twitter this morning and Meek Mill, who is a rapper who has become fairly well known in circles that don't listen to hip hop for his work on criminal justice reform, asked a question on Twitter. He said, you know, how does the government shut down or what happens if government workers don't show up for work? It's a serious question. And lots of people were responding with their opinions or their thoughts or memes or gifts. And I was like, wait, he asked a serious question. And I'm sure lots of other people have this question. So I just took some of the articles that I had posted before and some of the articles that we featured on Patsy the People that discuss how the shutdown affects different groups to people, how it affects government workers specifically, how it could affect everything from children to communities of color to the economy in the long term, and just posted those. And what I found is that a lot of people have found those immensely helpful. And it was just a reminder to me that learning is a lifelong thing, which means we need people that are committed to being lifelong teachers. And so I see my role as that. And so whether I was teaching my Harvard class as an Institute of Politics fellow last semester, whether we're doing the podcast, whether it's Campaign Zero, which is our platform to end police violence, we are trying to give people the language and the knowledge to be able to do the work in the ways that they are uniquely positioned to do it. So whatever gap you see, whatever issue you're working on, hopefully the information I share, the language that I help provide, the ideas that you're able to generate from content that I create can help you do that work in a more equitable and inclusive way. Well, and I think it is interesting because looking at social media and someone is talking about an important topic, as you referred to, and it is odd. They, they react with silly things rather than taking it seriously. You did an interview, which I absolutely loved. You were on stage with Beto O'Rourke. You said something that just was such an impact for me. You were talking about, you know, white women being instrumental in electing, and you used air quotes, President Trump. And I love what you said to women is that your whiteness will not keep you from what patriarchy has in store for you. And what I would love to ask you about, and that really struck me, is I'm like, it's so true. Like we all have to be in this together. There are variations of issues that white women and women of color are facing, but we all have to be in this together. And we have to look at this as a broader issue and, and understand each other. So I would love to talk about like how white women and women of color can work better together to achieve success for all women. Sure. So there is a framework called intersectionality that a lot of people have become more familiar with. It was created by a Black legal scholar and professor, Kimberly Crenshaw, who's still at work in California. 
created this framework to help people understand the exact answer to your question, how we actually ensure that work for social change considers everybody and not just some people. And a lot of people mistakenly use the term intersectionality to be a replacement for diversity, right? We think that we've got an intersectional movement if there are just a lot of different kinds of people represented. And that's merely representational diversity. Intersectionality, on the other hand, is a framework for how we actually look at solving problems. So intersectionality says that where a person has two or more marginalized identities, there are unique ways in which systems and institutions work together to oppress them. In other words, how sexism and racism affect Black women is different than how it affects Asian women. It's different than how it affects Indigenous women. It's different than how it affects Latinas. It's different than how it may affect a trans woman of color, uh, especially when you add the in the additional intersection of gender identification, right? So that's not to say that sexism doesn't exist across all women, but it is to say that there is a unique burden that women of color have and that those burdens are made even more unique depending on the identities that you have. And so understanding that means that that should dictate how we actually push our movements forward. So I often, when I'm talking to groups of women, like to use the example of equal pay. You know, the the conversation has been for a long time that women make 78, 79, 80 cents to every man's dollar. And that's not true. On one end, that is a white man's dollar all men are not making that dollar. And on the women's end, all women are not making that 78 to 80 cents. For Black women, it's lower. For Latinas, it's lower. For Indigenous women, it's lower. And often, Indigenous women aren't even counted in the calculations and the data that's shared. What's also really fascinating is that some people will say, well, Asian women actually outpace white women. It depends on which Asian women you're talking about. Because if you divide that up and disaggregate that data by ethnicity, Chinese and Japanese women are far outpaced the wages of Burmese women, for example. And so all of these layers matter deeply in terms of how you would, say, build a movement that is committed to creating wage equity between men and women. If all you're trying to do is win 20 more cents, that will, in effect, only help white women. And so I think it's about actually embracing that framework. It's about making sure that we don't silence women when we say, well, that's too many layers to go down or, well, let's get this part done first and then we'll come to your issue. There are creative ways that we can actually work together to ensure that we're addressing all of our issues and recognize that a rising boat really does lift all tides. So if we are paying attention to the ways in which women who are making the lowest wages need additional access from in everything from education to job training to unbiased interview processes and the retraining of HR departments and all of those kinds of things, if we're doing that for the women who are making the lowest wages, it will actually help support all of the women that need to see equal wages. So that is just one example of how we can apply an intersectional framework to the work that we're doing. But the short version is don't silence people who have issues that are a bit more unique from yours in the name of kind of false unity, right? Listen, pay attention and design solutions that consider them too. It goes right back to your point about education and being a lifelong learner and really understanding the issue rather than just a soundbite that you heard, you know, on the news and then taking that and, and thinking that you understand it. And I think that's really impactful to how we move forward. Since we're on the subject of ethnicity, I'd love for you to talk about, on a personal level, what particular challenges you have faced along the way as a woman of color. 
in a TEDx talk that you did, I think in St. Louis, you talk about invisibility being dangerous. And I guess I just would love to, to you to talk about your own experience and then sort of, you know, what you see as the future for women of color. Yeah, you know, I was grateful to do that TED Talk because it was at TEDx St. Louis Women and St. Louis is my hometown. And at the time where I was working, I was leading a major nonprofit. And one of the things I talked about in that speech was that I was so excited to connect with other women of color, with other Black women who were running organizations like mine, who were running nonprofits from whom I could learn. Mm -hmm. And when I looked up, I realized there was literally a handful of us. But there were about four or five of us and we were all calling each other and trying to build the boat as we sailed in some ways together. Women do that a lot. <laughs> uh, yes, right? Which is what we're all doing in nonprofits in a certain way. But again, because there are unique ways in which being a Black woman dictated how we had to do that job and dictated how people saw us, we needed a space to, you know, be able to come together. And there just were not that many of us. And I worked really hard to make sure that I personally didn't feel invisible. But every single day, it kind of came creeping into my head. If people really saw me for what I had to offer versus saw me as kind of a cookie cutter, saw me in their own image, right, or were trying to just determine what they thought an archetypical executive director should be in all the ways that I didn't fit in that from my dress to my look to the relationships that I hold in the community, etc. And so I think that there are lots of unique challenges that women of color go through, especially in positions of external leadership. And there are obviously incredible stories of triumph among us as well. And so I think what the pathway forward has to be, and as I said in that speech, is again, really a rounded intersectional framework. It's about making sure that we recognize that women of color have such incredible leadership potential, leadership skills, and such an incredible leadership profile in ways that our traditional frameworks are not necessarily defining. So, you know, when we look at our hiring practices, for example, we have to be paying just as much attention to how women are leading in their families and in their communities as they are in the workplace. Because there are important skills that are coming from when, you know, women are organizing folks in their church or in their neighborhood that are transferable to the workplace, but we don't value those as much as whether or not you've got an MBA. And so I think that those are the kinds of things where we can actually expand our definition of what good leadership looks like and include more women. And that is not a lowering of the bar, right? That is an expanding of the skill set that is necessary for leadership. And I think that what we will find is that when we expand our understanding of that skill set, we will actually see assets coming into our workplaces, our organizations, our companies that we never would have gotten if we had not expanded that folks who know how to truly engage communities, people who know how to knit together teams of diverse people, people who know how to really set high goals and build a, a team of diverse people to get there, people who know how to execute uh, strong visions and set strong visions because they've been doing so sometimes in non-traditional settings, but that's even better for the bottom line. And so there's certainly been a lot of challenges, but I think that my perspective as a woman of color has greatly informed how I've been able to move forward and how I've been able to move organizations forward. 
you know, my time at Harvard was really fascinating because I felt really fortunate that people were very interested in what I was talking about. And we averaged 70 to 100 students every week. And, and study groups like this were used to getting maybe 20 or 30 students max. And so it was about making sure that instead of trying to fit a mold or an archetype that was determined by people who don't look like me, that I actually came in there and was myself and brought to bear that kind of leadership that is unique and authentic to me. Um, and people certainly responded to that. I think people are seeking and I think there are a lot of people who want to be involved and want to understand it. It really is. Again, it goes back to that education and really understanding it and how to get involved and how to make a difference and, and being purposeful, right? About, yes. you know, when you talk about even hiring, you know, really being purposeful about that. In fact, I just, you know, recently I'm a, a working mom and I, I got to tell you, the working moms I know, I have one mom I know, she's got five kids. She travels all the time and she kills it at work. It's like the capacity, the efficiency of these women. Again, it's so overlooked in the workplace that people go, oh gosh, she got five kids and I'm run and run away fast. She's never going to be able to be here. You know, and I think just even all of those biases that we have, which are so, so wrong and we miss so much. I want to just talk a little bit about role models because that's, of course, what On the Dot is all about is just creating this mindset of abundance and the abundance of role models and women who are out there that are accessible um, and and relatable that are that are doing incredible things. And you talk a lot about your background, about just having your parents being role models and seeing how they activated in their community and made a difference. So I'd love for you to just talk a little bit more about role models in your life and how you think that women today can use role models to shape their own success and to gain confidence, because that's really the secret sauce that happens when you see, when you have a role model, you're like, wow, you get that confidence. I could do that too. I will say, you know, I have a lot of role models. I really admire Oprah Winfrey, not just obviously for the mogul that she has become, but for the way in which she has used her wealth to preserve the history of Black people. When you go to this Museum of African American History and Culture, the New Smithsonian here in D.C., you will actually see that a lot of the artifacts were donated by Oprah. And so those ways in which people quietly use their privilege and their resources to preserve and protect marginalized people in their histories is always meaningful to me. I greatly admire folks like my mother. She became a widow at age 40. She got her PhD at age 50 and she became an ordained minister at age 60. So she is just a constant reminder that excellence and defying the odds are never a wrong choice. But I'm also a big admirer and influenced by people who are younger than me. My friend Kayla Reed is one of the most talented organizers I have ever met. She is responsible for helping lead a very large and diverse group of people in electing a new county prosecutor in St. Louis County. People expected that the old county prosecutor would literally never be out of seat until the day he died. And they were able to elect a young attorney of color and able to re-engage voting precincts that had literally been forgotten about. And in some of those places, actually double voting turnout. And she did so in a really non-traditional way, as non-traditional as her own pathway. So when we met each other, it was because of the Ferguson uprising. At the time, she worked part-time at a furniture store and as a pharmacy technician. Uh, But you talked about purpose earlier, and she really found her purpose in the work of justice, in the work of protecting and empowering communities. And that is the work that she's been doing for the last four years. And in a time when a lot of people have said that street protest hasn't really translated into anything palpable, 
she defies that every single day. Uh, so she has gotten folks elected. She has reengaged voters. She has employed people at living wage standards to canvas voters for the very first time. She and lots of other people have completely shifted the political dynamic in the state of Missouri. And there are lots of folks who are scratching their heads because they had no idea that the communities of color and young people that she and others engaged could be engaged at all. And so it will mean completely different things for 2020 and beyond. And I'm influenced by her boldness and her courage. And she is a role model for me as well. I would love to connect you with her. She is a truly an inspiration and is so down to earth and so thoughtful and creative when she goes out to attack a problem. And so I think it's important that when we look for role models that we don't just look to famous people, that we don't just look to wealthy people, that we don't even just look to people who are older than us. There's inspiration all around us if we actually just take the time to look. Absolutely. I could not agree more. It's my whole reason for being. So I love it. You have so many things going on from your full-time gig with Teach for America, Thriving Podcast, you write, you speak, you've got your Love and Power merchandise, which is super cute. We'll definitely put the link here. You really have all these things you're doing to create this movement. So I'd love to know two things. Um, First of all, what do you do to unplug? Because, you know, otherwise, I don't know. I don't know how you'd keep doing all this. And then I want to know what's the big dream that's next. Oh, gosh. How do I unplug? I really love to cook. And lately, I've actually had a bit more time to do it. So that has been fun. I travel very frequently, but I typically try to make sure that I get some time in with the folks that I know and love in the cities where I am, because people that are supportive and that, you know, have been friends even before the last few years, my visibility has risen, are so grounding to me. And they're, you know, we just have fun. And it's not about, you know, what show I was on. It's not about how the podcast is doing. It's just about how we're doing. As far as what's next, I'm writing a book, which I'm very excited about. I've been collecting speeches of Black women for the last few years. And so it's going to be part anthology and part personal essays of reflection on the moment that we're in that I'm writing right now. It will be called We Are Like Those Who Dream. And so I'm really excited about that. It should be out next spring. And I'm getting married this fall. My fiance, Reggie, and I actually met in a protest and we're both from St. Louis. Who says protests don't do anything? See? I know, right? <laughs> There's so many incredible outcomes from deciding to stand up for justice, including love. Who knew? He's a really talented photographer and just recently did some portraits of some Hollywood heavy hitters at that National Day of, of Racial Healing that Ava DuVernay hosted on yeah. her Array campus. So, you know, between supporting his creative projects and him supporting my projects and us trying to build the life that we want together, that will take up plenty of good energy. So lots coming up, but I'm excited about all of it. Oh, sounds amazing. As we close, I'm wondering, is there a piece of advice that you would give to women in this day and age? I constantly think of this when I feel like I am too small for the room I am entering. I saw it written somewhere that you had a purpose before anyone had an opinion. And that just really sticks with me. Uh, I believe that purpose-driven work is the only work for us to be doing. And if you're operating in your purpose, there is nothing else that anyone can say, right? Can people give you constructive criticism and helpful feedback? Absolutely. But no one should be able to take your eyes off of the prize of your purpose because they should be busy living theirs. So, you know, it's not about feeling too small for the room. I have to remember that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be when I'm supposed to be there. That operating in my purpose will always put me in the correct place, teach me the right things, and help me reach the right people. 
Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. I know that there's so many incredible nuggets in there that our listeners will get. And we are excited to follow you and see what's next in your book. And I hope you post pictures of your wedding. Thank you so much. We definitely will. Well, wonderful. And thank you again. And we are always here for you and behind you. Thanks for the work you're doing. Looking for more inspiration, advice, and direction? Subscribe to our daily email newsletter and podcast, Four Minutes with On The Dot, where we provide you with the tools and motivation you need to get out there and be the badass boss you were meant to be. Tune in to next week's episode when we sit down with Jillian Bullock, filmmaker, CEO, and president of Jillian Bullock Enterprises, an empowerment and entertainment production company based in Philadelphia. Share On The Dot with your tribe. Like, subscribe, and share onthedotwoman.com, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you stream your favorite pods.